it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Come on. Go. Hey guys, welcome to the Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name's Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals and we get their views on the latest sporting issues. Today we are very lucky to have the El Professor for all you Money Heist fans out there of Irish rugby from 2001 to 2008, making him the longest serving coach of Irish rugby. Welcome Eddie O'Sullivan. Eddie, how are you doing today? Great guys. Um, looking forward to speaking to you about rugby. Hello, because I'm not rugby, so let's get on with it. <laughs> Perfect. So, Eddie, we're going to start right at the start. So, obviously, rugby from 1995 turned from amateur to professional. So, what challenges did you find that you had to adapt, overcome to make sure that rugby stayed competitive? Um, yeah, when, when I was involved in Ireland initially, um, back, I started back in uh, basically 2000, Six Nations. Um, we were in full professional mode then, but we had a really small staff, I thought for me the biggest thing was that we needed to upscale our support system around the team. Uh, we didn't have specialist coaches. We didn't do a lot of video analysis. Uh, our medical team was good, but it needed to be bigger, you know, in terms of injury prevention. So my philosophy was, and, and I kind of took some of this from, from my experience in America, and, you know, and I think Clyde Woodward had started on that pathway in terms of appointing a larger staff. And at the time, what Clive was in that, it was poo-pooed as, you know, it's going to be like American football, it's not going to work, there'll be too many voices, which is complete horse manure now, if you said it, people would laugh you out of the room. So Clive was ahead of the curve, and I've been in America, and I saw it up close in college football and stuff. So that was my starting point in terms of trying to give the players the... I mean, my ambition was, you give every time a player pulls on an Irish jersey and runs on the field, they have the best possibility of performing to the peak of their ability. So you had to put that support system around them. So we, we went from probably a support staff of about five or six when I took over up to 15 within a year. And that was a big step forward. And that was an adjustment for everybody, adjustment for 15 people in a room trying to plan you know, a strategy to win a test game. It was an adjustment for players, you know, multiple coaches talking to them. And it also meant that there was a lot of 
off-field work that went on that hadn't been before, like analysis work, uh, individual analysis of the opposition, individual analysis of referees. So we drill down to every part of our game and see how can we get the best out of this? How can we maximize this? And that's an ongoing process. You're always reviewing it and trying to make it better. So for me, that was a first stepping stone into trying to drag the game into the professional era. So yeah, that was that was that was kind of my my first kind of attempt to get Irish teams to think in that that area of being very professional and trying to maximize every performance. And I thought the best way of that was to put the best support system around them. So yeah, what's taken for granted nowadays was back then in the in the early noughties was kind of like was groundbreaking, you know. But to be fair, I have to say. In terms of rugby, I thought Clive Woodward was the first guy to go down that track, you know. Yeah, sure. Completely. So, so on this topic of sort of support system and coaches, I was interested in sort of talking about sort of the importance of the relationship between a head coach and an assistant coach. So you were the mm. assistant coach to Warren Gatlin in 2001 and then Declan Kidney yeah. was your assistant coach in 2003. Mm. And so all three of you, I guess, are really successful and bright sort of rugby coaches but I guess sometimes it just didn't work out because of I guess philosophies and sort of styles do you mind if you talk quickly about the importance of relationships yeah and I think this is worth talking about because again nowadays it wouldn't be really acceptable that when you're a head coach you're totally responsible for everything that happens under your domain so you are given basically the right thing to do is to select your support staff who's going to be able to help you and of course the that, that means that you're responsible for that staff member. Then when you pick them, they've got to deliver. Uh, back then, it wasn't that straightforward. I mean, there was a time, believe it or not, uh, in rugby when coaches didn't even pick the teams. You might know way too young to remember this, but they had a selection committee of five or seven selectors who picked the team and then told the coach. <laughs> you know, that's how bizarre it was. Like, side, I'm going yeah. back. I'm not going back that long. I'm going back probably... 40 years, it was, that was common. But so now we're, we're 20 years into professionalism. It's, it'd be insane to think that. So the, 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 probably the, the, the strange thing about myself and Warren Gatlin and Declan Kidney is that when I came on the Irish team, I really wasn't uh, Warren's selection. He, he'd just come off really bad World Cup in 99. They were beaten in lawns. It was a disaster. It was a you know, huge uh, reaction to it, as you'd expect, because Argentina weren't rated at that time, which is probably a bit harsh because... Argentina were on the cusp of becoming, you know, a very powerful team. So losing to Argentina, he was he was in a bad place, and then I was kind of foisted on him, I think, you know. And I guess that's never ideal because he then isn't picking his assistants. And in a similar way, when I was appointed, before I was appointed, I was asked, would I work, work with Declan Kidney? Would I have a problem? And, you know, what's the obvious answer when you haven't got a job yet? And I presume he was asked the same thing when he was asked would he work with me. So Declan, again, was kind of, it was, it, was a, it was a union plan. This is the way they wanted it to work. But you think about it, you're kind of foisting people on each other. So that's always, there's always a chance that won't work. And maybe there's a better chance it won't work than a chance it will work. So that's a difficult dynamic. I mean, you've got two coaches who maybe different philosophies. Because like, when, I, when I, the staff I picked to work with me, um, I had talked to them about their philosophy, how they would work, did they mesh with my views in the game, how we communicate. All those things get kicked out the window when there's a staff member foist on you and it's an assistant coach. So, yeah, that was difficult, I guess, for everybody involved. Um, and and it's, it didn't really work out in some ways, you can say it did in others. But, yeah, and I think that's the takeaway here. You know, you should let head coaches pick their staff, which is now common, but back then it wasn't. So obviously one thing being a coach is your strategy or tactics are very important and one thing which I found amazing reading about recently was that 
in the 2003 Six Nations that you tricked the Scottish side by leaving a note of fake line-out calls in the bin. And so during yeah. the fixture, Scotland got really confused and you dominated the line-out because they got it all wrong. Yeah, it was a small thing, really, but it was... Back then, there was... Um, you had to be very careful um, when you were training. There was a, there were, Teams were scouted, you know. Uh, it's all mm. kind of gone now because there's so much video available and teams are analysed to death. But I remember... Um, I'd been there two years previous as assistant coach. It was the foot and mouth year when all the, the games for Ireland were delayed into the fall, into the autumn. Yeah. And uh, we went to Scotland and uh, we got whacked in Scotland. It was just it was ugly, just really ugly, which was not unusual for Ireland going to Scotland to get whacked because for 20 years up to 2000, we got whacked by Scotland regularly. You know, That's turned on its head completely now. But anyway, that's mm. by the way. But we, we, I, I, I remember... There's a story went that we got scouted because we trained before that game on a Thursday in an open area, and uh, I think we were scouted pretty sure because they shut us down. Everything we did, they knew what we were doing. And two years before that, there's a story that the Irish manager at the time, John Lennon, found two Scottish RFU employees in a shed at a training session. Or supposedly cleaning the shed, brushing the floor, you know, sweeping the floor during our squad session. So it wasn't uncommon. So you had to be careful. And mm. um, now, the funny thing about that is um, we had, when I took over, we had changed our lineups considerably because we had a really fantastic lineup coach in, in Milo Donovan, who's now the manager of Munster. He was my assistant coach then. He was a fantastic forwards coach. And um, I remember or he was re- restructuring our lineup. We went to the World Cup in 2003 and we had the best lineup in the World Cup in 2003. We were the, most, the top performing lineups. But we were in Scotland for that. We hadn't won in Scotland. I think at that stage for like, oh, geez, since Adam was a boy, it was like 20 years since we won in Scotland. We went to Murrayfield and it turned out the ground was frozen. Like all these stories, there's some sort of karma. The ground was frozen and we couldn't go to the field. So we had to go to a gym in the city to do lineouts. And uh, we had all line calls and I just got this crazy notion. Just leave them lying around, you know. <laughs> what? They're, they're the wrong line calls. What's the worst thing that could happen? So we were training in the gym and we were we left these lineup calls and caught for a refuse pin and we left. And then just for fun, we came back the next day to do a final session and we, we said to the, the uh, caretaker, well, geez, we were really worried. Look, and we left these, this bit of paper on the bin here. It's very important yesterday. Is it, you know, did anyone take it off? No, no, nobody's got that. He said, no, no to be thrown out, you know. Sure, we knew well they had it. So the next day, they, their defensive lineup was, they just, they couldn't function because they were taking wrong cues. So it took yeah. pressure off our lineup. We won that game, actually. It was a big game to win mm. in Murrayfield. But it was one of those things, you know, it just was a bit of, I suppose, being a bit of devilment, as they say. And yeah. kind of, kind of like, I don't think it won us the game, but it was a nice one. It's nice actually, like an unbelievable story. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I guess that topic of the World Cup in 2003. So you lost to, was it um, France in the quarterfinals? Yeah, we lost to France in the quarterfinals. It was a bizarre game because... Um, we, I remember the first 20 minutes of that game, we, we hadn't missed a tackle and we were 17 nil down mm. because um, one try was, there was a penalty, obviously. There's always a penalty early in the game. You go 3-0 behind. Then there was, a, there was a try they got with a cross kick to Emil Harry and and our winger had kind of, kind of wandered off and left his station, you know, and we got caught out wide. It was, was, the cross kick wasn't that common then, you know, it, it, it is now. But yeah, we got caught cold on that. But the other score was was an intercept. And they ran 60 metres. So suddenly you haven't missed a tackle and you're 17-0 down. Quarterfinal World Cup. 
it's a long way back, yeah. And on margins. Yeah, and no, the takeaway from that World Cup actually was that we, we kind of got bullied. You know, we weren't physically where we needed to be, and that was a big focal point in the next cycle. Was trying to get up to speed physically, because also that in the build up to that World Cup, uh, we ended up playing England for a Grand Slam game in Dublin, mm-hmm. and they they were they physically dominated us. They were they were able to you know wear us down. And we, we, we hung in that game. That, that the scoreline in that game, you know, was really is really frustrating because we were in that game with 20, 20 minutes to go. It was one score or two score game, and then the wheels came off and we got wiped out. And people looked at the score and go, "You were whacked." Well, we were we were whacked for fifteen minutes when we were just out on our feet, you know. Mm. So there was that was that was part of it. The takeaway from from the old three World Cup that we needed to to beef up to compete, um, and that was certainly one of the things we were we were looking at going forward. I found throughout your career with Ireland, you've lost by narrow margins quite a lot. So in 2004, mm. you lost the Grand Slam to France, but still won the Triple Crown. 2006, mm. it was France again, and it cost you the championship. And again, yeah. in 2007, it was France. As a team, how do you go about trying to like rectify the situation? Because obviously, it became a pattern and a trend in your. Well, I think what goes over people's heads, if you look at France in the noughties from 2000 to 2009, mm-hmm. and you look at them from 2010 to 2019, so take just two yeah. decades. The French team that I was playing against were were so much better than they are in the last ten years. I mean, mm. the stats don't lie. Um, in the noughties, France won five championships. Yeah, and two of those two of those were Grand Slams. Um, in the 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 teens, so from 2010 on, they won their four, they won a Grand Slam in 2010, and they didn't win anything after that. It just mm-hmm. went off a cliff. Um, their win percentage at the, in the noughties was 72%, exactly the same as Ireland. Ireland and France had the same win percentage in the noughties, 72%. But we won one Grand Slam in 09 with Declan Kidney as the coach, and they, but they won two Grand Slams and three championships. So, but their numbers dropped in the, in the, since 2010. Their percentage has been 52%. Catastrophic. People say, well, how did that happen? Very simple. One mm. guy, Bernard Laporte. Absolutely it. End of story. The French team under Bernard Laporte was a different animal. Like if you think about Laporte, uh, French teams were, were historically very talented, uh, very physical, very skilled, but you know you didn't know what you were getting. Uh, but Laporte changed that dramatically. He changed a number of things. He changed three things that was very un- un- typically on French. He always picked his best team. He was a very smart selector. Whereas a lot of French teams before and after, they've often had crazy selection policies. You know, when you look back through it, they make 10 changes. They pick some guy who's 19 years of age or half in a six-inch game and think something good's going to happen. You know, they do these crazy things as part of the French, but the port was atypically French. The second thing is, he, the French discipline was always terrible. I mean, the port hammered him on discipline. Um, the captain of France, the, the second row, I can never remember his name, um, famous second row player for Toulouse, um, he was captain of France and he got a yellow card in the game and he dropped him off the squad. So imagine dropping your captain because he got a yellow yeah. card and that was just send a message. We're not going to play like this. And the third thing, thing that he did is they played to a very structured game, very untypically French. So mm-hmm. I think the Port is a fantastic coach. And what, like, he was, he was, he's a, I wish he wasn't around when I was there because we might have got a, another couple of championships. We lost, I think we lost uh, England. We cost us a Grand Slam in 03. 
Uh, mm -hmm. France in all four, France in six, and France in seven. Yeah. Well, three, three, four championships by one game. Three of them were France. And probably the, the sickener was we still could have won the championship in all seven. But they got this really controversial try at the end that nobody okay. saw. And we mm -hmm. had won initially by 50, but you know, they're, they're, they're the margins. So I think Bernard Laporte, and here's the irony, which is worth taking note of. I think, I think if I was having a bet on the next World Cup, I would pick France because Laporte is the president of France. Yeah, and he went on. He went on on a political kind of, I suppose it was a journey to make sure he became president. Because I think in Laporte's mind, and I have huge respect for the guy, he's a very shrewd politician. He got himself elected as the president of French rugby. So the last World Cup, nineteen, Laporte didn't really care about it. Like oh, things go well, they don't go well. But he's dialed in for the next one, twenty three. They're at home. He's going to try and win the World Cup in twenty three that he lost back in in uh, in seven. And, and if you think about it, they did the hard work in 07. They came through the hardest side of the draw. Mm. You know, they had to beat, um, they had to beat New Zealand to get there. They had to, like, the, South Africa got a really cushy draw. Um, but unfortunately, England were, were, were actually an Achilles heel for, for France right through that Laporte yeah. time. So Laporte is on a mission to win the World Cup. They didn't win in 07. So I think that's pretty ominous for everybody because... They are. They have. France always have the ability to do this. You know, they just have the talent and they've got the athletes. So I think um, if you go back to my time, the port was 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 my nemesis. To be fair to him, and I have a huge respect for that because he was he's a brilliant French coach, and and he will he will have a huge impact on French rugby going forward for sure. Yeah. I just want to talk no, about. Sorry. There yeah. no, you go, Matt. Um, so I just want to talk about, I guess, two players in particular in the sort of Irish setup of the senior there. So one being Paul O'Connell. And the second being mm. Brian O'Driscoll, and they both had sort of immense sort of um, influence on the team in terms of leadership, and I guess they yep. were just phenomenal players on the field as well. What, how were they sort of looked at amongst the squad members and the influence they had? Well, they were, they were very different captains. Um, so I guess um, Brian, I made Brian captain when he was very young. Um, I got a lot of criticism for it because he was a little bit immature, but they, you could see that leadership ability in him because he he always like the one thing uh that leaders have is they have huge respect within the team well you know people outside might not see that because they're not training with them they're not playing with them but you have to have that sense of everybody believes in you and um when you come to o'connell and, and o'driscoll that was never in question for the players but they were very different captains like i said um brian was was a kind of guy who was he was quiet. He was um, pretty soft-spoken. He picked his moments to speak. Um, he wasn't a New York face type captain. Yeah. Because Paul was very much on the other end of the scale. I mean, I don't know if you follow soccer, but we've a pretty iconic soccer player in Ireland called Roy Keane, uh, who is regarded as, you know, he's, he's a big personality. He, he, he doesn't suffer fools. He, he, you know, he, he takes people on and, he played his game like that. Paul is cut from that same cloth. I'm not saying he's exactly like Roy Keane, but he's cut from the same cloth. Um, you know, guys, guys were afraid to make mistakes when Paul's around because he, he would jump on you. Like, now Brian's the same but a different style. So two very different guys. But what they both had is the following, which makes you a captain. One huge respect among their peers. Like when they were on the field, uh, and and the funny thing, they were on the field together. Um, they they were they were the leadership was about not who was in charge, but how, how we could get the team across the line. So even when Paul and, and, and 
running around the field, which was great because the more leaders you've on the field, the better. That, that England team that won the World Cup in 03, that was just dripping with leaders. So my ambition was to have as many leaders as possible on the team, but I had two really good guys in them, and they worked very well together, even though Brian was more or less the captain all that time. But having said that, I think they had huge respect. Um, the other thing was they were fearless. Like, they just, they just didn't talk the talk. Like, they walked the walk. Like, they would run through a brick wall. I remember one game in Paris, and the two of them, we had, um, I think it might have been uh, 08. Was it 08? Yeah, we... we we had this uh, thing in Paris. We did it two years in, in, a, in a row there. As we, we let France get about 25 points ahead and then try to reel them in. Like, we made enough mistakes. We made enough mistakes in the first 40 minutes that you could make in a season. Like, two intercepts. Like, I just was watching the game through my fingers. Um, in fact, it's a funny story. My assistant coach, Nilo Donovan, um, said to me during the, like, it was just chaos. He said, this is like a nightmare. And I said, well, if you wake up, let me know because I'm having the same one, you know. And <laughs> so, but two guys, funny, Brian got this really, really dead, bad dead leg. He got hit on his knee just above his knee and all you know, the blood was flowing down and his leg was swelling up. And I, I remember the doctor went on and said, oh, he's, he's, he's done, he's cooked. He has to come off. So it's 20 minutes in, like, oh, hell's breaking loose. And I said, well, what does he think? And he says, he doesn't want to come off. Uh, and I said, what do you think? I think he should come off. I said, well, what does he think? He said, he, he doesn't want to come off. I said, listen to the captain. I said, let him play on. <laughs> 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 that was my kind of way of, of, of uh, asking the mm. medic to, 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 to cool down a bit. We said, see how he goes. He played for the rest of the game. He played for an hour with a dead leg. I mean, his leg was a mess. Like he so much uh, blood after dripping or running down into the, the lower part yeah. of his quadriceps. So he ran through that game and we nearly won the game. We came back and only won the game. The other same story, five minutes into the second half, Paul O'Connell was taken off the side of a rock and popped his AC. So his AC joint was sticking up. Yeah. And again, like the pain of that is horrendous. And he wouldn't come off. He just played on for, four, for 35 minutes with his AC separated. And he didn't just run, like, you know, some guys run around feeling, filling gaps. He was carrying ball. He was making tackles. Mm-hmm. So that sort of, Physical toughness uh, in, uh, was there. So huge respect, really tough guys, like just wouldn't back down. And then the other thing was mental toughness, which is different again, because these guys, the bigger the occasion, the more they embraced it, which is kind of runs against normal thing. Like the more pressure you're under, you know, the, the quieter a lot of people go, the less they project. And you need these guys. Like when you're under your posts with 10 minutes to go and you're just giving away a penalty to lose the lead. Who's going to talk up here and get us out of this hole? So under pressure, these guys were tremendous. So mm. I, I've been lucky. I've dealt with Keith Wood as well, who's a cut from the same cloth. Fantastic leader. Uh, physically very tough. Uh, you know, very smart player. And then mentally incredibly tough. Big occasions, just embrace them. So I guess, you know, having worked with those guys, I uh, was very fortunate. And that was the thing I think that makes them different, is that capacity, those three key qualities that makes the difference between good and great. That's my mm. take on it. And obviously you went on the 2005 Lions tour. And so what, obviously I just go, um, spear tackled and what was it? Yeah. The third minute. What sort of effect would that have had if he was ruled out for tour? What sort of effect would that have on the whole team mentality to lose a leader? Are we one of the best players? Well, I think it shook everybody when he, he got taken out like that. But um, let's be honest that that wasn't why we lost the tour. You know, the tour was in big trouble. And again, like I go back to Clive, who was the coach. Clive, 
I knew Clive going back when he coached the uh, England under twenties. I was the Irish under twenties coach. He was a very innovative guy. Things outside the box all the time. I love that. You know, I I really have really like talking to Clive. He's very engaging, and we have good discussions about rugby. And like we'd we'd slag each other because if I came up with something he hadn't thought of, he used to piss him off. He just always looking for an angle, you know. And I always thought that was brilliant. And I think he took that tour on the basis that he want. Like people again forget history, but the tour before that in 2001 was a shambolic tour of Australia that they nearly won. To be honest, so well, you could say it wasn't shambolic because they nearly won it, but there was a lot of unhappiness. There was a lot of stuff in the media, players speaking out about how they weren't looked after, and that was a very small coaching staff. Um, Graham Henry was the head coach. Don Lennon was the manager, and they nearly won the tour. So I probably should take back with shambles. It wasn't, but. In terms of the players, they were very unhappy. A lot of the players, they felt there was a them and us. The Wednesday team weren't looked after. There was a lot of blowback around that. And there were some of the players went into the media and, mm. and through the coach under the bus. So it wasn't a happy tour by any means. So New yeah. Zealand was next, which is the toughest tour. And Clive said, OK, let's come at this differently. Let's, let's try and make sure that everybody goes looked after. And, and his logic was really good. But he went and brought two squads, two coaching staffs, like it was huge. I mean, it was just so unwieldy. And I, my sense is it was going to be very difficult to keep this on track. This massive, you know, it was like it was like just a huge ship with everything going on everywhere. Because mm. we were in the Little Morgan prepping to leave, and geez, it was so unwieldy. You know, the training sessions were running over. We two buses going to training, meetings were long. It was just it was very hard to get your arms around it. And I think that was always going to be difficult. So in retrospect, there was a lesson learned. Yeah, in theory, you double everything and everybody is looked after, but it doesn't work like that. It gets too unwieldy. And then the yeah. second thing was, tactically, there was a lot of talk. I did a podcast a couple of years ago before the Lions tour with Matt Dawson and uh, Tom Shankler for BBC. And uh, they were talking about oh, how they felt left out, the team, they weren't, they were, the, the, the Wednesday team were looked after and all that. And I didn't agree with them, and I went had gone through it. One of the things Clive wanted was to make sure everybody was included. So, what you do in a line store is you take, you say, you're, you pick the first couple of weeks and you let everybody you know, lay out their cards, and then you try and get a test side, put it together, and see is it the right test side. So, what changes from there on is somebody gets injured, or somebody loses form, or somebody plays their way in. But you kind of have a good idea after a couple of weeks what your test side is. Clive had a different philosophy, he felt he could keep changing the team. Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, and then come the week for the test, put our best chips on the table. And I think that meant we didn't build units for the team. We didn't build mm. a back row. We didn't build this front five. There was a lot of moving parts that weren't locked together. Completely. So I would, and if you look at the selections, there was selections changed all the time. Even in the test series, half the injuries, Brian Driscoll included, we made bundles of changes. So we never got a settled side together. And it was an environment where there was a, it was a large operation. Lots of people going in different directions. Came very unwieldy, and you're playing the hardest team in the world to beat at home. So, yeah, the odds were if it went wrong, it would go badly wrong, and unfortunately, it did. And I respect what Clive was trying to do. And the thing that struck me is that for a guy who won the World Cup less than two years earlier with England, he's brought the mm. Wave Ellis Trophy north of the, the the equator for the first time. The, the British media, man, they were just waiting to pounce on him. They pounded a crap out of him. Now, I guess he didn't help himself. He brought in Alistair Campbell, you know, and Alistair's a great guy, but I think Alistair is a very good, you know, he's a great political advisor, no doubt about that, but I think he was, he not so much he was out of his depth, but he, he wasn't sure where he was with the rugby side of things. 
And I mm. think the, the media just took that as some sort of an affront and they just, that was it. The gloves were off from the start. So when things started to go wrong, the media just weighed in and he got a terrible kick. And I just, I just couldn't believe that a guy had done so much for English rugby, got such a kick in with the English press mm. two years after yeah. he won a World Cup. Like, but just, just can't tell you how the press worked, but there was, there was th- things like that resonate too, which was 15 years ago. And it's still in my head. The other things that jump out at me. Mm. So obviously you coached the USA Eagles in the 2011 World Cup. So what would you mm. say are the biggest differences between coaching the USA, which is a more sort of developing rugby nation, and Ireland, which is a very dominant sort of already there? Well, it was my second trip to America. I coached the assistant coach in 99. But um, so those, that trip in 99 was really helpful in, in, in knowing what to expect in, in, uh, back in 2009. Um, yeah, look, it, it's an amateur team. You know, it's just an amateur team. It's just mm. a completely different. It's, you know, it's like being coach of Europe. It's a huge country, fifty states. You know, players from Hawaii, Hawaii to Boston, from Seattle to Florida, everywhere in between. Um, all amateur guys working jobs. Some of them, the thing that I respected, one of the things I have a lot of respect for American rugby. One of the things that was how these guys would say they wanted to go to a World Cup and say they'd say I want to play rugby for the Eagles in the World Cup in two thousand eleven in New Zealand. They just put their life on hold for four years. And I mean, career, family, everything. Uh, they can't apply for their jobs on them. They can't take they, they can't take promotions in their jobs if they have them. Some of just just work job to job. And they come into camp then in these for these blocks of time, like a Churchill Cup at the time, or we maybe have it we had a couple of, we had an autumn tour at one stage or we had the this and that or whatever was going on and these guys just gave up their job and came into camp and we gave them a per diem which is a few bucks every day and here's the really sad thing which people wouldn't know is you come into camp today or you give up your job whatever you're doing working and construction or whatever you come into camp today you come training and you hurt your shoulder and then i send you home and you're out of work you can't take a job or your shoulder's injured and no one's paying you you just literally have no income so these guys went through incredible, like, I mean, commitment to get on the plane to New Zealand. And um, there were some guys played overseas, but we didn't have that many. So I knew this going in, you know, it was, this is how it works. And, and um, what you're trying to do is you're always looking for new players, recruiting them. You're always fighting with budgets to get them into camp and develop them. And then you're trying to convince them that they have a chance of actually making progress. But I always found that the sense of enthusiasm, these guys was off the charts like, they were the easiest guys in the world to motivate. Like just, they were trained. There was no, you know, professional players sometimes they get awful edgy. Like they, they get them all, you know, training and you're supposed to train for 75 minutes. And when you run to 80, players start complaining, you know, we're five minutes over and we want to get off our feet. And these guys just trained. It got dark. They didn't care. Like they were so happy to be in camp. So to me, I knew going in, this is what I was getting. I was getting amateur guys with an incredibly professional attitude that would just run through Wavia. So I loved it. It's just brilliant dealing with these guys. And I still keep in touch with some of those guys. And it's they're fantastic. And then what happens is all these guys, they finish World Cup and they just get on with their life. A lot of them just retire and try and start a career. But they're starting when they're 28. Everyone else yeah. is eight years in front of them. So, yeah, it was just a, it's a different job, completely different job. Budgets are very tight. Everything, has to, the cost of the Gatorade has to be factored in, you know. There's no sponsors mm-hmm. running after you. Because you know? in America... Rugby is still a tiny sport. It's got potential, but I keep, people keep thinking there's a there's a mad, there's a, there's a silver bullet here, and rugby's going to become huge. You talk you talk about that potential, and obviously you yeah. say it's, it's rugby. It's a big thing in the news bank because they're trying to launch the MLR. 
And at the moment, they've got like the Bastaro's gone over there. But mm. it's still quite like the MLS, where players are going at the end of their careers just to make a bit of money. Yeah. Like you think in got... soccer back in the day. That's yeah. what happened in soccer. But do you think it's got potential to attract young stars like like the which are in the Premiership and Super Rugby at the moment? The problem is there's a couple of models being proposed in America and the one at the moment that the MLR is a kind of a slow burn model where they're starting and they're trying to grow the all these franchises and get more television and get more money. But where they are now is they're they're semi professional. So they, yeah. they train a couple of nights a week and they do gym work and stuff, but they're not full time professionals every day. They're not on the training field at eleven in the morning. All these guys have jobs. And even the guys who come in from overseas, they've got to supplement their income somehow. And then again, the season is so short. So that's one model. And and the problem with that model is that for the people who own these franchises, it's cost them money. I mean, I think the burn on these franchises, I'm going back a year ago, I was talking to somebody who owns a franchise and they're losing three million a year. Yeah. Not a huge amount of money, but again, it's not pocket change. And mm. it may take seven, eight years for these franchises to start becoming valuable. Um, you could run through... 12 or 15 million bucks in debt before you start making a profit. Now, all it takes is if, if you've got seven or eight franchises and four of them go off the rails financially, that's the end of the league. So it's, it's a fairly high risk. Now, the other model that's been talked about, and there's a guy at the moment before AI, I, I ran a combine for them back in, I think, two or three years ago in, in Minneapolis, where they're trying to get um, big money in at the front end, massive investment. And then they would go out and harvest the best players in the world, come to America and put this massive product on. Um, and that's a different model. But they're talking about raise seed money of maybe 50, 60 million at the front end. Mm. And then the product goes in like this finished product, practically world-class players playing and, and they've tracked. Because the thing about rugby in America, rugby has got a lot of players, a lot of supporters, but it's a community. It's a small game in a big country. There's yeah. no tipping point in rugby in terms of its footprint in sport in America, until non-rugby people start watching it, right? Mm. And that's the tipping point. Very hard I, to do. You're I just can't see that happening against the NFL as well. The NFL is just no, too big. No, there are there are win. There, there is a window for a contact sport, like because after the NFL stuff, contact sport after that is basketball, you know, or ice mm. hockey, you know. Oh, so yeah. there is probably a little rigor room. But how do you get Americans to start watching rugby seriously? And that's the tipping point, but mm. it's not going to work. Like at the moment, it's fine, but the growth rate is very slow, and that's how the model is built. But if you're going to have a tipping point in rugby, then you, the, the rugby community in America are not going to turn into a professional game. It's the American public have to embrace it. So how do you get non-rugby people in America to embrace rugby? That's the trick. And, you know, there's a different way to skin the cap, but there's risks in all of them. There's no non-risk way of doing this. That's really interesting. Thank you. So for, so for like the last minute of the podcast, we always ask our guests what their number one highlight throughout their career in, I guess, rugby is. What would yours be? Oh, um, from a coaching point of view, I've had a couple of good days. I, 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 guess, um, I guess for me, it's, it's the game against England in Crow Park in 07. Yeah, because yeah. historically in Ireland, that was a huge game. Uh, it was a historic. I don't know if you've read the history around that, yeah. but it was a pretty historic day. So the reason for that is that that was a game that Ireland couldn't lose historically. All right. So you know, everyone says you can't you can't lose this game, like it's a Grand Slam game. Yeah, 
I can say that, but you know, this is Six Nations again next year. If you lose this year, maybe you get a chance mm-hmm. next year. But this is a one off first game against England in Croke Park, very historical venue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we we won that game. I would have taken one nil before, but it went better than that. So I was very happy with that game for a simple reason is that from a coaching perspective, you, you go out and you have maybe five or six kind of uh, bullet points or goals you need to achieve to win the game. You think if you, if you tick these boxes, you should win. And sometimes you, you, you maybe tick four of them and you still win, mm-hmm. you know. But you, I don't ever remember a game where I had you have your six or seven things you want to do and you come back and you've done them all. And you go, geez, yeah, that was an easy post-match review. Everyone did everything they should do. There was no, there's no going back and saying we should have done this better. And when you feel the amount of pressure the team was under that day to get a result, that we ticked all the boxes under that pressure. That's my point. I was really, really satisfied with that for the players because they were under humongous pressure. They kept their focus. And we lost to France two weeks earlier in the last mm-hmm. minute um, in the, the first game in Crow Park. But this one was even more pressure. And under the pressure, they ticked all the boxes for me. And, and the result then was, what it, was no doubt about the result. We, we, we kind of cruised home on it. So that was, for me, it was a great, enjoyable day for all those reasons. Wow. I mean, Eddie, thank you so much. I think that's about all we've got time for. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure Matt will agree with me. That's been so insightful and just a really interesting chat. Well, um, really I love talking rugby, so maybe talk again sometime. Yeah, we'd love to. That, that was really, really enjoyable. And then can I just thank everyone else for tuning in, listening again, and we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.